0: This past month has seen an age-old tension play out on a local, national, and international stage, all three. The drama of which I speak is the ongoing conflict between those with authority and those over whom they have authority. Now, at the heart of the issue is either the abuse of authority or the disobedience to authority, and usually... It's a combination of the two. Those who have authority abuse their authority, and, uh, and, and it's really sad because so often when people are given the right to quote-unquote rule over others, they, they do it in a way that is unkind, unjust, and, and not in keeping with the purpose of having authority. I think of the words of William Wallace in one of my favorite movies, Braveheart, Mel Gibson, back when he wasn't. Completely insane, apparently. Um, He says this as William Wallace to the nobles of Scotland. You think the people of this country exist to provide you with position. I think your position exists to provide those people with freedom. You have no idea how many times over the past two days I've tried to develop a Scottish accent so I could do that quote that way. It was going to be so bad, I just decided good old, you know, American Southern English is just going to have to deal with us. So I tried and failed. You'll have to forgive me. Needless to say, Jesus said something akin to what William Wallace said when he told his disciples, you know that those who are considered to be rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But that's not how it's going to be among you. Whoever wants to be great, among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Whether it is the situation between Russia and Ukraine on an international stage, or the tension between the police and the, citizens, the citizenry of Ferguson, Missouri, what usually is at stake in our world of conflict are issues of the abuse of power between authority and the ones under it. This has even been thrust into our church world. And when I say our, I mean Prism's church world this past month as the largest church in our association, pastored by the founder of our network of churches, was removed from our association because of unaddressed claims of spiritual authority abuse. I'm happy to say that in our network of churches, no church or pastor is above being held accountable for the mistreatment of others. It is critical to understand that Jesus has not asked us to turn the other cheek to unjust authority. We are to oppose it. Now, Jesus has something, about the way, uh, has something to say about the way we oppose it. Understand that. But nowhere in Scripture does it imply that we're to sit quietly under the abuse of those in authority. In fact, as a pastor, I've had occasions to encourage, challenge, exhort people to extricate themselves from abusive uh, relationships in the workplace. I've had occasions with other elders to tell spouses to leave abusive marriages Uh, We've as elders at the church I planted in Florida Had the occasion to tell a student That their parents were being abusive And telling them to do things And forbidding them from doing things That were biblically required And we encouraged them to find a a foster home Where they could actually live and follow God I have a friend in Orlando who is an attorney And he defended a very public instance Of this very thing Uh, He was put in charge and led the legal efforts of Rifka Barry. She's a U.S. resident of Sri Lankan origin who drew international attention in 2009 when she ran away from her home in in Ohio at age 16 because her Muslim parents told her they were going to kill her for converting to Christianity. And I have a friend who actually went to bat on a national stage and defended this young woman. The, The admonition was, Get out of that environment. You don't have to stay there. That's insane. Yet the discussion of authority is present in Scripture. How do we respond to authority? What is the proper means of uh, imposing authority? What, what does it look like for us to submit to authority? Authority and our willingness to submit to it is one of the most uncomfortable topics particularly for American individualists. I want to be clear about that because in countries and in subcultures where there is more of a collectivism, there's more of a a, we're all in this together kind of mentality, uh, there is less tension when this subject comes up. Understand that biblical passages about authority have to do with the role of the church in particular Uh, But I can speak for many when I say that I have both a natural and sinful, let alone a cultural antipathy for authority being exercised over me in any way, shape, or form. I, too, was a teenager. In this climate, I can tell you, in this climate of a country where we really distrust any mention of the word authority, when the word authority comes up, people are like, oh, I resist. It is pretty easy to become sort of an ivory tower, anti-authoritarian, almost uh, intellectual anarchist uh, and, and say, you know, that all authority is bad and should be mistrusted and is, has no purpose for us and it's abusive. Most people dislike authority a lot until they become parents then it all starts to make sense. Or you become a supervisor at work. Then you see clearly the need for order and the importance of recognizing the value of authority. And why? Well, scripturally, it's because it reflects God's authority over us, His character, which is why the Apostle Paul would have said in Romans 13:1, well, you can look it up for yourself, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Um, you may not realize it. I certainly had to realize it, that I am grateful for authority in so many ways, while at the same time hating it. Uh, in 12 days last week I returned, last Saturday night, over a 12-day period I drove 5,700 miles across the fruited plain of America to Florida and then back. Back. And you know what my favorite states were? Texas and Utah. You know why? 80 miles per hour, baby. (laughs) Woo! That's my kind of state. I hate speed limits. I mean, I hate them. I don't not like them. I I, I mean, it's kind of like an apocalyptic sort of. I mean, I literally can't stand it. I'm moving fast most of the time. But I see the need for speed limits. I learned over 5,700 miles to hate orange cones and construction zones. That totally messes up your timetable. I mean, you go from, uh, you know, minimally 70 miles an hour down to 55. But I'm intelligent enough to recognize the need for construction zone cones. It's, It's a safety issue for the workers on the roadside. And This brings us to our final lesson in the study of the book of Hebrews, the discussion of authority in the church. And as we'll see, the needs, you know, as we see generally, the need for parents to be in charge of the home, the the Bible makes it clear that the collective known as the elders is the means of guiding and directing the local church. And we all have to take a collective deep breath and ask ourselves what does it mean for me to obey the scriptures in this regard? What we mean by authority, I want to be very clear about this, because there are some funky churches in the world. And you may have been a part of one. And so this kind of discussion would automatically put your antenna up, put the back of your neck hairs like standing on end. We do not think that the church has the right to tell you which job to take, how much to give. Uh, That's just creepy. The, The Bible says that the authority of the scriptures has to do with the operation of the local church. The functioning, the the capacity to discern what does God want us to do? How do we guide our church? How do we guard the truth of Scripture? John MacArthur says this, The pastors, elders of the church exercise the very authority of Christ when they preach, teach, and apply Scripture correctly. They serve the church on behalf of Christ and must give Him an account of their faithfulness. So when we talk about authority, we're talking about only authority that's been given in Scripture and only the Scriptures as the means of dictating what should be done. There is no creepy other methodology by which we go, let me discern whether or not you should take that job. And, you know, that's just not God's plan. God's plan is that a collective of people would help us to practically move through and discern what His will is in the, as it pertains particularly to our church. Now, the sermon series in Hebrews today will conclude. And it concludes not with a whimper, but a bang. This last chapter, Hebrews 13, is filled with critical exhortations that are to be exercised in light of everything that was taught in the, past, in, in, in the previous 12 chapters of this letter, which is effectively a sermon Hebrews concludes in chapter thirteen with six verses, verses one through six, that give us some practicals, a practical application list that I want to fire through real quick for you, because I have two things to say about the elders, but it would be in, uh, completely inappropriate for me to just hopscotch over verses one through six. So let me just give you a little taste of what the book of Hebrews is saying. Let's in uh, saying in reflection. For what we have learned for the first 12 chapters, here are some quick hit and admonitions. You need some handles to grasp how you should apply grace and follow Christ in this. Verses 1 through 6 of Hebrews chapter 13 say the following. Show familial love in verse 1. We're supposed to love one another. Brotherly love. The Christians are supposed to care for each other. In the same way we care for the members of our family, assuming you have a healthy family. Verse 2, we're supposed to be hospitable to new faces. The practical application for us would be as people come into our church community, are you saying this is ours? Or are you saying, welcome, this is yours? Are we going to be hospitable to strangers? Verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 13, we're supposed to remember those who are being persecuted, which means in prayer, it may be ways that we have to visit people when it talks about remember those imprisoned, it's speaking specifically about Christians in their world who were jailed for the proclamation of their faith. In what ways are we coming alongside of people who actually have been, are being persecuted for their profession of faith in Christ? We're told in verse 4 to be sexually pure. Kind of let that marinate for a while in our sex-drenched culture that is constantly trying to get you and I to change our definitions because really there's just a desire on the part of all of us to live autonomously from any type of imposition of any moral authority in our lives. And it's just bothersome to folks to hear that God says inside of a marriage, a marriage between a man and a woman, we're going to see the reflection of God and His church And this is the only place that sexual relationships can take place. This means single men have to abstain from everything from pornographic influences to any kind of sexual relationships outside of the context of a marriage covenant with a woman. There's no two ways about it. The scriptures say it with clarity keep the marriage bed pure. Sexual purity is challenged and encouraged and commanded. And then verse five, avoid materialism. I, when I hear the word materialism, I'm, I'm always uh, made aware and remember what the Puritan Thomas Watson said when he said, we always show our worst side when we're compulsively climbing the ladder of discontent. In other words, as you're climbing the ladder, you, they see your backside. It's the worst side of you is you pursuing greed. And then finally, in verse 5 and verse 6, we're challenged to be bold and unafraid. All of these are a summation of everything that the apostle has told us throughout the course of this letter. And today he will conclude by showing us the real, the clear role, and our real need for elders, both in our church and in our lives. The need for people to functionally play a role of helping us discern what's going on, what God is saying to us, how God is directing us. And when I say we need elders, friends, I want you to know I need elders. Mark Driscoll needs elders. And I don't mean yes people. I mean people that will say no, that will tell you no. This is not a good thing. When we say elders, we also synonymously refer to them as shepherds. We're talking about, in our context, the men of our church who are the most mature and collectively provide guidance for our church on the matters facing it. We are governed and will be, as we move over the next year, by a plurality of elders. What I mean by that is no one elder has authority in our church. We are governed by a plurality. And those elders collectively, beyond that, are charged to come alongside us and encourage our faith. Real quick note for you on an ecclesiological or a church governance matter. That is that by the end, by our fifth birthday in October 2015, Prism Church will have a plurality of elders in place. We'll spend most of this fall, next spring, training our elders First class of elders. I want you to understand what that means practically. I'll revisit it a few times this year. Right now, the Acts 29 network has appointed me an evangelist or a single elder in a church plant situation, which means right now I have all the power. Actually, I don't. I'm overseen by a regional group of, of elders who, who guard and, and, and guard the doctrine of our church, which is why we publish all of our sermons online and they are available to the people of our growing mission team if there was a concern about the way I live. And I have been charged with this. You will appoint elders. And if I am too slow getting to that, they'll jump in and deal with it. They demonstrated last month they're willing to jump in on just about anybody. So if they're willing to take down Mars Hill Church, trust me, they're, we're not going to have any trouble with Prism Church in Pasadena. They've told me, you will yield, and I'm like, cool, I know I need elders. I have no desire to be the power man. But what happens oftentimes is in our distrust of authority, pastors, I want to talk about pastors, they will oftentimes create a whole new methodology for uh, governing the church, and that is the, the Moses model. I will be up on the mountain with my staff and you will obey. Kind of like Gandalf in the Lord of the Rings series. This is kind of sort of the thinking. I'm a super prophet. And because I'm super prophet, you should super submit. Don't go there, friends. It's not only unbiblical, it's unsafe and it is an environment, it is a greenhouse for spiritual abuse. Let me show you the flip side of that coin, though. In a congregation's fear of having to actually follow someone else, you might create an environment that says, you know what? We're going to be a pure democracy. We're going to have the, the least mature person in our church is going to have the same say as the most, pers- the most mature person in our church. We're going to be congregationally governed. Let's have a vote on my next sentence. And, then, and what happens is, is the church gets just, just jerked into a just paralyzing sense that they can't go anywhere. The biblical model is that we would collectively find the people in our church, and that's why they pay me the huge dollar Roonies here in the Acts 29 network, which is incidentally a joke for those of you who are new. Um, uh, uh, For me, to work with them, they will help me assess elder candidates in our church. And then when we find a quality set of elders, we will ask everyone, including me, to say, what they say about our church goes. Which means if I bring to them the notion that, you know, I got an idea. Let's paint the building pink. It'll, make it, it'll get the attention of the community. Um, people will notice us. They say, uh, no, Chuck, we don't sense God wanting us to do that. But I heard from God. He told me, paint the building pink. Their proper response to that would be, son, if we say you ain't heard from God, you ain't heard from God with regards to this church. We're not painting the building pink. Now, the flip side of that is, if somebody decides, a group of elders decide, that they're going to paint the building some color that you don't think is a really good idea, at some point, you have to ask the really troubling question of your own soul, and that is, why do I have such a difficult time trusting that God can work through a group of people who, at times, make rather boneheaded decisions? This is the dilemma that my children have faced for the 18 and 19 years of their lives. I mean, how would you like to have me as a dad? You think that sounds good because I'm funny? I'm telling you, there's some challenges my children have. Explains a lot when you know what they're going through in life. That's not an easy thing, but they have to be able to sit back and go, okay, dad at least has got some serious issues. And, uh, and so I don't agree with this thing. But if it's not unbiblical, if I'm telling, not telling them to do something that's wrong, they are called to trust God and kind of play along until they decide, I don't want to live here anymore. They have two options. They can either trust mom and I that God is working through our leadership of our home. Or they can say, this ain't going to be to my home anymore. I'm done. And we've given that option to at least one of our children. Say, so, hey, listen, it's clearly an option for you. If you can support yourself, have at it, chief. That gives away which kid it was. <laughs> one just like his dad. A great kid. He's just strong, testosterone. You're not supposed to live with your parents when you're in your 20s. That's how it goes. You and I are in a place where we have to say, are we willing to trust? And this is the issue. If we're going to talk about elders and shepherds, we need to recognize that the primary role of the elder, just like it is the primary role of the parent, is to care for. Not to exercise authority over. When Carol and I talk about our kids, we don't think of ourselves first and foremost as rule setters. Here are the rules, you children. You will obey or I will make you miserable. That's not what we do. We think, let's make our house this place that's really enjoyable. Let's have a house that's full of love. Let's provide guidance and structure. But we relationally want to be close and touch base with our kids and care for them. One of the greatest thrills we have is paying for our kids' college education because we know we're investing in something that's really meaningful. I mean, it's a stretch, i got to tell you. But, man, there's nothing I like better. It's because our primary role is to care for them and provide for them. It just so happens that for benefit, part of that caring is that we provide boundaries for them too. This is why all of us need elders, So, a couple of quick thoughts for you, and I have my eye on the time today because I am on a newly developed time schedule for sermons. I have been directed precisely. Uh, And I'll tell you this, by people who are in authority over me, your sermons are a bit long, Chuck. Trim those bad boys up. So I'll listen to the guys, and you and I can together begin to understand what's the role of shepherds in our lives. First thing is this, I will tell you this, shepherds. People who will guide your life, they lead you to safe pastures. Verse 7 of Hebrews 13 says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. These people are leaders, which implies that we follow them. I follow someone on this earth often. I have two mentors. I have a a local board of elders I'm accountable to. We all follow leaders in our life. Even if you're the CEO of your own company, you've got a board of directors. Somebody is always directing us. And we have to evaluate us. Oftentimes we have to evaluate whether or not the people we are placed under are worth following, are trustworthy enough to follow. In our case... We're told that the ones who are leaders worth following are not only those who spoke the word, which means that they have a role in teaching, but also that they have a way of life that you could evaluate and say, is this person's life worth following? Is this person got something that makes me say they have enough wisdom gathered, enough 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 sense of humility before God Almighty that they have enough comprehension of the Scriptures that I would actually say, okay, I want to walk along with you as we follow Jesus together. This Scripture is very clear with us that Jesus hasn't changed. We're to imitate the faith of those who go before us and lead us because they are imitating the unchanging Jesus. Jesus. See, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I want to follow people who are following Jesus. Because if they're imitating Jesus, then we're in good shape. 1 Timothy 3, verse 2 says this about the elders. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. And this is because critical role in an elder or even a personal leader of your life is that they have to have a familiarity with the scriptures. They have to know what has been said so that they can filter what is being done in life through that. Even that which has been given by some if they got a sense that the Spirit is leading them to do that. That's to all to be filtered through the Word. Versus in our particular context that would admonish us to follow the truth of the gospel, even in Hebrews 13, verse 9, we are told, Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who devoted to them. So you and I are easily led astray. We need help not to be led away. It says that Jesus suffered outside the gate to sanctify the people of God through his own blood. He reiterates a teaching of the book of Hebrews to say a strange teaching would take you away from the pure gospel which says you are made right with God by Christ alone. Man, any funky, weird teaching that you could get into is almost inevitably, I mean, is going to add something to what Jesus did. They're going to say, yes, yeah, yeah, Jesus died for you. But, see, that's where you just got to kick that butt out of your life. You need to just move. Because anything added to it is impure, and it's ruining that which the book of Hebrews has gone to great lengths to explain to us. You're right with God because of what Jesus did. And you want to love him, but it's as a result of relationship with him that is made possible by the fact that he said, you're okay with me. We're told in verse 15, through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Through Jesus we can do that which brings God pleasure. Offering our lives, offering our language, offering our world to him. And say, this is for you. We love you. The key to the ability to recognize the need for elders, overseers, and leaders in our lives is having the humility to recognize that we are easily led astray. That we easily forget that in Christ alone we're accepted and we easily begin to think that our life is our own instead of to be offered as a sacrifice to God. This is why. We need people in our lives that are just there to remind us of these things. I, if you haven't picked up on it by now, uh, my wife and I have been married 24 years, and we have a really fun relationship. I think so, and you can talk with her later, and I'm pretty sure she'll tell you the truth. Whether or not she says fun or not is, is probably a subject for another time. But, you know, she knows and is convinced that God has called me to lead our family as a servant leader. But understand, I'm called, while I may be called the head of the family, I am called to put her needs above my own desires and longings. So if this is working right, it's a little bit of heaven on earth. Because she's saying, hey, do whatever you want. And I'm saying, okay, I want to do whatever you want. And I'm saying, I'm here to serve you. So what is it that you want me to do for you? When it's not working right, it's hell on earth. It's one person not feeling served and the other person not feeling respected. And it's just a mess. Because we are broken, because we are so unable to submit to authority, all of which is established by God, There is something that works in our marriage, this this call that we have to mutually submit to one another that requires me and her to believe that God is sovereign and powerful enough to accomplish his purpose in spite of what the other person is doing. If in your heart of hearts, you're committed as am I to the principle that I would never ever do anything that my spouse doesn't want to do. If you're committed to that principle, you have to believe that if they tell you not that they don't want to do something that you really want to do, you've got to be able to believe in your heart of hearts that God is sovereign over that. We had that happen several years ago. I wanted to buy a timeshare at the beach. We actually went to the beach. We actually went through the process, loved the place. Kids loved it. I loved it. Carolyn was like, okay. Went through it. We signed it. We came home. We had 24 hours to cancel. And she told me, Chuck, I think we need to get ourselves out of this thing. I was so mad. I couldn't see straight. I wanted this thing really badly. I was really, really ticked. Because I felt like, you know what? You're just being selfish. I'm an awful human being. But I, I submitted to the process because I'm committed to what Scripture says. I'm supposed to give my life to Carolyn as Christ gave his life for the church so I said okay and I did it begrudgingly It wasn't until a couple of years later when the economy went down the toilet and we moved to California that I realized what would we have done with that thing that albatross hanging around our neck and I had to humbly crawl to the feet of Carolyn and beg her forgiveness for my poor attitude God protected, he, he led our family to safe pastures because I was willing to submit to the biblical reality that my life, while I, I get to be the spiritual servant leader in our home, my life is a, is a slave to the needs that she and my kids have. And so I, I, I've learned bit by bit to know That shepherds, whether it's in the church or whether it's in our life, that they lead us to safe pastures. The second thing I would encourage you to think about shepherds is that they watch over you to protect. They lead you to safe pastures, but they watch over you to protect you. Verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Imagine a shepherd on a hill watching over a flock of sheep. Imagine the dangers. Some could wander off. Some could fight with each other. Some would not be feeding well and become malnourished. Others could be attacked from wolves who slipped in unnoticed. And the purpose of the elders, friends, is not to run the church, as I heard one old elder say in Florida once. "We uh, purpose of the elders to run the church. No, the purpose of the elders is to protect the church, to love the church, to care for the church, to, to look over the church and, and do what is best for the church. Now, if the purpose of the elders were to be the power, to be the authority of the church, I could see why some would see it as a misogynistic power play by men the Bible would say men only can be elders because they want to retain power. If that were what we were talking about, I could, I could get behind that argument, but that's not the role of the elder. The elder is the chief servant. The role is not authoritarian, but caregiver and protector, and it makes perfect sense that the physically larger and testosterone-filled ones would function in the role of protector. Let me put it another way for you. For those of you who struggle with the idea that the scriptures we believe are very clear that men are supposed to be the ones that lead in this capacity of shepherd and elder. If we said only men can clean the toilets here in the chapel, would anybody really object? Would you? I mean, is that, because that, if, if you would, I got to say, what's, what's up with that? You know, do you really want the right to clean the toilets? I mean, why? What, what is it? We think the role of elder is one of great sacrifice and service, and we want those men who have historically thought they were entitled to power by virtue, by virtue of their size to humbly assume the posture of servant as did Jesus the Savior. I think nothing would glorify, nothing would magnify, nothing would reflect the character of the risen Savior more than a really powerful man who has to get on his face and clean the toilets of a church and serve the needs of the congregation and make the needs of the people of the congregation more important than his own for power and prestige. Some quick verses from the, uh, the scriptures about the role of elders. In verse 14 it says, When they appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. Again, the emphasis being, Our focus is not on trusting any person in authority. It's trusting that God will work through authority as it's biblically faithful. Acts 20, 28. Pay careful attention. This is an admonition to the elders, to yourselves and to your flocks, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. James five fourteen Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And and I look back to even the verse, verse seventeen. Let these elders, you're called to trust them, trust the Lord, to follow the direction of the collective, not any one individual elder, the collective of elders You're called to do that because to not do it, to make life miserable for your elders by just creating problems, this would be of no advantage to you. Can you see the advantages to having people who care enough about your life to watch over and make sure that nobody's poisoning your theological well? or watching over your life to make sure that no one is abusing you in any way, to help you in those moments when you're trying to discern, what am I going to do? Which direction am I going to go? Let me go and actually ask for counsel from people who care about me and have no other agenda in life. got to tell you one final story. When we started Prism Church, we started from scratch. This was three and a half years ago. And what I mean by that is, is that I didn't know... Um, I was actually, I did know, but I was directed very clearly from the Acts 29 network to um, that I was to start without anybody from a church that I unfortunately failed at pastoring. I initially came to Pasadena to pastor a small congregation that was a church plant whose pastor had left, and when I got there, under the weight of the pressure of that, under the weight of some conflict that was associated with it, I folded up like a chair And God used it to humble me In some ways that I needed to be humbled I I was a broken human being And I was at a place of great Great pain in my own life Which is why my sympathy for my sister Is running so high Because I know what it's like to to feel undone To feel like I was on the floor Unglued Coming apart at the seams I had insomnia for a month Couldn't eat It's a great way to lose weight But it was not fun Couldn't keep food down. I mean, I was literally coming apart. So we came to the conclusion through a lot of counsel from others that I was supposed to walk away from that previous congregation. And then we had three months to decide. (laughs) Three months. What are you gonna do now? You've moved your whole family out here, what's next for you? And you know, it was it was suggested to me you should plant the church. And you know, I'd done all kinds of research about this area and the need for great gospel-centered churches in this area. And, and I thought, yeah, this is something I'd want to do, but I'm in a really bad place. I mean, how in the world do you do that if you don't know anybody, and you don't have any money, and, you, and you're emotionally like a train wreck right now, because I feel like I'm just bruised and battered, and, and God had broken me in such a way that I was, I was feeling like I wasn't even like capable of being a pastor anymore. I mean, I was literally thinking about, maybe I just need to go cut grass, because I know I can do that. I mean, I was truly really trying to figure out what's next. So how does a young, how does a couple, sorry, I love to think of ourselves as young, how does a couple with high school students, effectively, in three months discern whether God wants them to start a church from scratch in a community that may feel like it doesn't need more churches, in a community that is really expensive to live in and we didn't have much to live on, how does one discern that? I'll tell you how they discern that. They go through a process where they submit their life to the counsel of other people. So some of the leaders from the church that graciously allowed me to step away, my five best friends from around the country, my two mentors, and the Acts 29 Assessment Center, I said, if you don't think this is what we're supposed to do, you tell us no, and we'll pack up and head back to to Tallahassee, Florida. We willingly said, and I was in no place to argue. I mean, I was so, at that point in my life, so broken. I said, you know, I don't really care at this stage. I mean, I want to do this, but if you, God doesn't want me to do this, I'm going to believe that no one in my life is going to think this is a good idea. And so I told these people that. Every one of these peer counselors. I said, I absolutely need the, the, the Lord's honest truth. What do you think? And, and to a person, they said, we think you need to take 2009 off. Get your feet back under you. And then in 2010, we think you need to start a church from scratch. We think God's called you to California. Now, I say that not to say, look at us. We're just these incredible church planters. I'm saying that even the process of planting this church, the the church that you, some of you are saying, I want to be a part of, this was not born out of some mystical experience where I went up on Mount Wilson and heard God say, plant a church in this region. This whole process was just one of just brokenness and a submission and a recognition that I could be hearing this all wrong. God, please speak through these people and these people. And Carolyn, what do you think? And what do we think? And what do our kids think? And it was just, Jesus, you have to be clear. And I can tell you at that stage of the game, the shepherds in our life watched over us and led us to safe pastures. Good shepherds lead you and me into safe pastures. They look out for us in our best interests. But friends, you and I have got to seek out their counsel, be willing to believe God is leading us through them, and listen to them when they share their thoughts. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful that you're sovereign, even over knuckleheads like me. (laughs) Thank the Lord, Father, for that. I'm just grateful that there's nothing that can happen to our lives that you don't allow.